0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. How can I live my life when I can't tell good from evil? Eh, they're both fine choices, whatever floats
1: your boat. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: Good man. They think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. Pay no attention to that man.
1: Anybody can have a brain.
0: You're a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Millions of lives were suddenly ended in an act of evil perpetrated by Dr. Manhattan himself. Since the attacks, I have been in constant contact with the premier of the USSR. Putting aside our past differences, we have both pledged to unite against this common enemy. Do you see? Two superpowers retreating from war. I've saved Mm -hmm. the earth from hell. We both have. This is as much your victory as it is mine.
1: Now we can return. Do what we were meant to. We were meant to exact justice. Well, then,
0: by exposing me, you would sacrifice the peace so many died for today.
1: Peace based on a lie. But peace, nonetheless. All right. For those who don't recognize that audio clip, it was from a movie called The Watchmen based on a comic book called The Watchmen, which if you have not read, I highly suggest you read it. I chose it um, because... I think it illustrates nicely this tension between two ethical views that that uh, form kind of the basis for one of the biggest debates in – I don't know, Tamler, would you say all of, of – definitely in moral philosophy but but almost in philosophy, right? I mean – but yeah, in no, terms of this, this is the Red Sox,
0: Yankees of debates, right. Duke, North Carolina, the utilitarians versus Kantians, uh, And it's also one that's not just philosophers, right? It's, uh, I think it's pervaded popular culture. It's pretty much every superhero movie has some sort of dilemma like this. Right. right. Uh, anyway. But, the, you know, the, there's the utilitarian choice and there's the Kantian choice, um, Right, so So this is something that – or the deontological choice. This is something I think everybody will be familiar with even if they don't know the terminology that's used uh, to
1: describe it. The gist of it is we want to find out – how do we determine what is good? What is the morally right thing to do? Uh, And so the utilitarian – or we'll probably toss around the word consequentialist – um, also, just because we can't s- stick to the same jargon, but uh, the the view here is the re- the way that you determine what is good or what is morally right is simply based on whether the consequences are good, and so obviously that requires a, a lot of fleshing out. But the gist of it is, if it brings about good things, then it was the right thing to do.
0: Greatest good for the greatest number, yeah. Right. Then it's the right thing to do, and usually that gets boiled
1: down in terms of number of lives saved or happiness right. or happiness, or, right? You can and then you can contrast that with uh, deontological moral theories or Kantian moral theories that say uh, essentially there are some things that are wrong no matter what the consequences. Yes,
0: I mean, like most a lot, so many moral dilemmas are like this um i just read one today where imagine you're in a concentration camp and your son <laughs> has been caught wait hold on I hold mean, on Tamler, yeah. hold.
1: do you have a book that's like the moral dilemma a day like a
0: <laughs> yeah and they all have nazis or evil neuroscientists <laughs> or aliens or yeah you know,
1: I, I, I think we the- should make that the next very bad wizards publication moral dilemma a day what do you think? Like a calendar? Are, yeah. Oh yeah, like one of those little pull-offs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the far side or something. Do they Except, still have those? I don't I they must. I I think if you go to the dollar store, they probably have like tons of those kinds of things. Like
0: Moral Dilemma Day. Well here's here's one, for example. Uh you're in a concentration camp and the your son has been. Uh, caught trying to escape and the and the guard has caught him the evil nazi guard and he's going and he makes him stand up on a chair and he's going to hang him and then he gives you a choice he says you can kick the chair out from your sons uh and 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 hang him yourself so you actually kick the chair out and if you do that then then your son will die but nobody else will die if you, do, if you refuse to do it, then the guard will kick the chair out, and then he'll kill five other innocent inmates in the concentration. That's
1: horrible, man. You just, Would you you just ruined my day. I know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bad one. But see,
0: the utilitarian choice there is pretty clear, right? Your son is going to hang one way or the other, yeah. and he might be a little less happy knowing that you're the one that kicked the chair out <laughs> but it'll but, be only uh, for a short uh, period of time that's not going to weigh, you know that if you weigh that against five innocent lives it, it probably doesn't outweigh you know whatever calculus you're using so uh, so what you do it yeah right, right, right. Yeah. and the utilitarian <laughs> choice is always
1: distasteful right it's always uh <laughs> yes yeah, right. In these, so uh, so in these dilemmas, you they're they're intended to pit two pretty unfavorable options against each other, and it just so happens that that the utilitarian choices uh, violate some intuition about what we should should just do. We should not be doing things like that. Speaking of dilemmas and unfavorable choices, I
0: have one right now, and I think I've made it. I'm pretty sure that this is going to be our last podcast. I'm sorry about that. I know that we're starting to build an audience very slowly, very gradually. But um, I recently got, uh, I think via my daughter, but also just watching Jon Stewart. There's been a commercial. Do you know that song, Call Me Maybe? (laughs) I have that song in my head right now. And I can't get it out. And I was up from like 3 in the morning till 6 in the morning literally banging my head i started i started hitting my head to try to get that song out of
1: it and i could not because that's a, an effective strategy to to get songs out of your head well
0: i tried everything else i tried thinking of other songs i tried thinking of flight of the concord songs i tried you know imagining myself as a you know quarterback for <laughs> patriots which i do sometimes to try to you know like get other shit out of my head nothing worked all i had was call me maybe in my head and I still have it. Like even right now, I still have the song in and I've decided I'm going to have to kill myself. I, <laughs> my daughter. I brought my daughter to school. I said, you got to give me an extra long hug because this is the last time you'll see me. Uh, you know,
1: I, I can't disagree with you. I mean, I had fun. It was nice knowing you yeah I know I
0: appreciate that I- but you wouldn't want me I mean, again it's it 's a utilitarian choice i 'm taking the i think the utilitarian way out because uh, the, the, the misery that i 'm going to experience living with that song in my head is definitely outweighs you know the, whatever good can come of my going on living uh, at the same time you know there 's something sort of you know you might think that it 's a deal
1: breaker not to commit suicide
0: you know when you have a fam stuff
1: like that so. right well let's put our cards on the table right now I, I'm gonna come out of the closet and admit that I find it hard and distasteful to be a utilitarian or consequentialist and that I that I think I am a deontologist now I don't mean that I can justify it I don't mean that I can defend deontology against against the reasonable positions of utilitarians at the end of the day but I just can't oh, I can't get myself.
0: Well, so here's an interesting one, right? I mean there's a debate going on right now at the Atlantic between Connor Friedersdorf, Freidersdorf. Oh, <laughs> Connor, <laughs> Connor German guy. Yeah, Con- Connor German Jewish guy, Dorf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, whatever it is, I, 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 he's a good writer. Do you
1: remember I mean, Dorf on scared. Golf? We're just yeah no what, what you say there was a, do you remember Dorf on golf it was a uh, oh, Tim Conway <laughs> Tim Conway God that dated me okay oh wow Dorf
0: <laughs> uh, every every v- listener under the age of thirty five just <laughs> immediately clicked this off oh yeah Tim Conway he's on the Carol Burnett show now uh, so, uh, so so so. Connor Friedersdorf, he's he's one of those good conservatives, you know, like at these, he's that kind of writer. He is opposed to these drone attacks. Do so you, you know what these drone attacks are? Yeah, uh, yeah, basically,
1: we send we send robot planes to do our dirty work for us.
0: Yeah, and they and uh, our dirty work is to take out terrorists, right? Take out Al Qaeda members, take out Taliban members that are you know that that are. Uh, a threat to us and also a threat to the countries they inhabit. But the the problem is, uh, and, and Connor Friedersdorf did interviews with all these people who live uh, among these terrorists that we're taking out, is they, their whole life they live with these drone planes flying over their head, not knowing, uh, you know, these drone attacks, they don't just kill the, t- the terrorists. Twenty-five percent of the victims are c- civilians.
1: And <laughs> well, okay, but is that is, number, is that number what? is that number is that number twenty-five percent? Is that does that represent an improvement, uh, like over manned attacks? Um,
0: it's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer. Because
1: when you but present point, to me like point, robots but- and killing terrorists it just sounds like a great solution it
0: sounds like a great solution except that it's taking 25 in uh innocent people and even if you don't get killed by these drone attacks and this is it's it's this is the part i think connor friedersdorf i mean look every war you're going to, there's collateral damage and you kill civilians but in this case they're living in terror right our drone attacks our drones ironically have this same effect of terrorizing these uh, these towns and these uh, these areas because they just kind of circle around and you never know. Imagine having these just hear like a buzz. unmanned airplanes yeah. going around that at any point could just you know it's like the living in the it's like the Blitz.
1: Right. Talk about like the, the the like most messed up conditioned stimulus. Like, but hear the buzz of a drone, someone dies. Hear the buzz of a drone, someone dies. Can you imagine? Just you'd be shitting your pants every time you hear that. No, buzz.
0: especially. Now in America, we're all such pussies, you know. Like, if, uh, if right. uh, you know, we all have to wear uh, bicycle helmets and elbow pads when we <laughs> go on bikes.
1: <laughs> also, not effective against drone attacks, by the way. <laughs> also, not effective, right. Uh,
0: uh, so, anyway, Connor Friedersdorf just said he refuses to vote for Obama, even though he supported him in 2008, and even though he doesn't want Romney to win. But he thinks that he's taking a principled stand. He calls it a deal breaker. That I, 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 you know, somebody who would support this kind of policy, the drone policy, is not someone I will support. I suppose uh, it,
1: and, if that's like the mo- so I, if if he really believes that that Romney doesn't have even more dis- distasteful consequences in his future.
0: No, uh, he does. That's the thing. Because you know it's not like Romney's going to put an end to the drone attacks, right? But he refuses. He takes the principled stand of refusing to vote for somebody who would have this as part of their foreign policy. Now, let me just read to you what Robert Wright, another writer at the Atlantic, author of the a great book, uh, The Moral Animal, and then right. author of some God books to follow, for some reason.
1: <laughs> really. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I haven't read <laughs> But they're like a couple of God books after that, right? I did uh, not know that.
1: I've read The Moral Animal, but I did not. I,
0: yeah. I love them. I think I became a – I went into philosophy because of The Moral Animal. Oh, wow. So he says, I can see the appeal of Connor's argument. The Obama policies he finds unacceptable, such as drone strikes that kill innocents, the assassination of American citizens abroad. Uh, he, I've been criticizing those policies. And the principled stand – as he calls them, is inspiring, but he says, I have a hard time ignoring the consequences of implicitly encouraging would-be Obama supporters to nullify their votes and thereby increase the chances that Mitt Romney will be our next president. So if not voting for Obama only increases the chances of victory for the candidate I consider worse for America and the world than Obama, I'm not going to do it. And he says Friedersdorf says he respects the argument of utilitarians who take the position I've just outlined, supporting Obama because he's the lesser of two evils. But he says he wishes many more of these utilitarians would at least confront a thought experiment that might get them to question whether they're really thoroughgoing utilitarians, whether they don't in fact believe that some values are so important that they should be honored regardless of consequence – uh, or, as Friedersdorf put it, whether these professed utilitarians don't have, quote, deal breakers. So, anyway, you have this kind of tension between the appeal of taking a principled stand on something like drone striking, um, even when you are risking, not that you know, anyone's vote really matters, but, you know, especially right. for someone
1: in the Atlantic, he can influence people, right? Right. Uh, you know, the, so these are the dilemmas that, that arise when there's tension between these two. But I, I want to kind of point out that there's not always tension between these two positions, right? So many of the things that deontologists, deontologists hold dear are also things that ma- that would maximize good consequences. Um, but it only becomes interesting when you put these two positions against each other in some sort of tension. And, and these dilemmas, uh, there are all kinds of kooky ones that philosophers use. But these happen in in real life as as I think this debate illustrates nicely. Um and so, so the question really is, yeah, I, I think it's a, uh, it Shelley Kagan is wrote wrote the intro ethics textbook that I read um, when I was in grad school, and he calls deontological positions as having constraints on action, and what what Wright is calling deal breakers. Are there any deal breakers? Like, if you could be convinced that it would maximize consequences to do something really horrible and distasteful, would you do it? Now. I think a lot of people say that they are consequentialists without really thinking about it. Um, So I think a lot of, and we talked, Tamler and I talked a little bit about this. A lot of people who are social scientists, for instance, uh, think that it's straightforwardly obvious that, that consequentialism or utilitarianism is the right moral theory, but these people end up being really opposed to torture. For instance, even though they say that, They think that it wouldn't bring about good consequences to have a policy of torture um, that they should still be willing to admit if it's completely obvious that torturing somebody would save a a large number of lives, then they should be willing to accept. it.
0: Well, I mean, the waterboarding, uh, the waterboarding example is a great one. And it's a great one that I mean, most social scientists are liberals. Right. And most liberals were against waterboarding and torture. Now. Why were they against it? Had they done the research right. and determined that the consequences of waterboarding at Guantanamo were, uh, were definitely unfavorable? I would think a vast minority, if any, of the social scientists who were probably opposed to that policy had done any research or a- any…
1: Absolutely, and I think that it's a little disingenuous, but here's the thing. I think that being a consequentialist or a utilitarian is… Or talking like one is really appealing, and the reason it's appealing is because we can all sort of agree on this currency of well-being or happiness or goodness or whatever. So we can all say, like, all things being equal, all things yeah. being equal, I think this would be a better thing. Uh, it would maximize the happiness in society, or it would not. We can social scientists can do things like measure well-being. And they can say, oh, in countries where this happens, you know, th- then everybody's happier or whatever. But um, but at the end of the day, they are adhering to these – some of these sacred values, some of these deal breakers or constraints. And you find this sort of disingenuous way of arguing a lot in the debate about capital punishment. So people say I'm opposed to capital punishment because it's not a deterrent As as if were there evidence that it were a deterrent. Like they would change their position, right? Yeah, and it's just BS. That they was would, the
0: Obama. Uh, that was not Obama. Uh, Dukakis. That was his thing. Was <laughs> right. Right. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's not really like so. You know, you just know that if you presented an article with them that had like clear, solid evidence that that uh, the death penalty deterred murders, um, that they would just say something like. Well, this needs to be replicated.
0: <laughs> well, also, here's the thing. It's I, I, I would agree that it's not – yeah, no, they would demand replication. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. No, but here's the thing. It's not je- – uh, I read a really interesting article on this. I mean this is a separate subject, but it's not really separate because it, it comes back to this consequence thing where it doesn't need to be a deterrent for it to be the – consequentialist for it to be the consequentialist choice right, right. so here's a couple ways that it, even if it's not a deterrent it still might be the consequentialist from a from a consequentialist perspective uh, or the right thing to do first of all these inmates if some of these inmates that are put to death um, are threats to prison guards and to other inmates within the prison Right? Right, uh, right and so they can cause a lot of damage in fact the basis for in texas and where the capital punishment kings of the world right or at least the i, I think that actually civil-
1: it's the de- it's the default penal- i think that in texas it's the default penalty for any crime like but,
0: uh, 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 but one you cannot <laughs> put someone to death in, in in texas without uh they have to have one aggravating uh factor which is that they c- Pose future threats, right? And if you don't, and and so a lot of the reasoning in judges' decisions is, it's purely consequential. It's like we have nothing; we, we can't do anything with this guy. One of the retarded people, uh, or borderline retarded, disabled, Men- mentally disabled, mentally
1: disabled, I believe, is the term. Yeah. You're, you're mentally such- disabled.
0: <laughs> well, I had a student actually <laughs> who who made a, a a point along this line. It, uh, <laughs> it says. You know, uh, the judge's decision, which was really interesting, purely consequentialist, kind of saying, yeah, no, it's unfortunate. This guy is a very low intelligence, but there's nothing that we can do, and he's going to pose a threat to the inmates. Um, And so I see this as our our only choice. It's like
1: putting a dog down.
0: Yeah. And then my student – He said, "Not only that, but you know, it kind of sends a message. (laughs) If you put to death somebody who's mentally disabled, it's it's, it sends a message to people." And and he put it like this: "Like, come to Texas, we kill retards." But right, better, right. Like, there is no difference. We kill retards so don't start any shit. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like don't even think that you could get away with like the Twinkie yeah. defense in Texas, because you, you can yeah. actually be completely incompetent mentally. Right. You can have like the IQ of like a two-year-old chimpanzee that's had too much <laughs> we'll heroin. Still, and we'll
0: still kill you. <laughs> we we'll care. still.
1: Uh, that sends a message, you know. It does so again,
0: right. and a consequentialist, you know, that it might be a deterrent uh, in that sense, right? Uh, And then finally it might be a deterrent because it allows prosecutors to make deals for guilty pleas, right? Uh, You save a lot of money and court resources if the defendant pleads guilty in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table.
1: You know what cracks me up? Is when sometimes people say – like, I actually, for the record, I don't – I'm not a fan of capital punishment. No, I'm not.
0: Um,
1: Although you're a fan of people killing out of revenge. Out of of just pure, unadulterated revenge and anger. No, I'm not a fan of that. I'm just more – I'm less a fan of a society in which that's not allowed. (laughs) Um, So – but what cracks me up is when people say, well, you know, uh, putting someone to death actually costs a lot more than – then uh, keeping them in prison for life as if somehow <laughs> the cost should be what dictates this like, oh, shoot. Well, let's cut some corners here and make it so that we can kill people again. <laughs> like,
0: right. No, I know. I mean, uh, yeah, we just have a more efficient process. Right, right,
1: uh, right. Let's actually just just like throw these guys out in the middle of like a really crappy black neighborhood with a KKK hood on. That will be like a real cheap way to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: let's uh we've been borderline racist borderline uh <laughs> anti-hispanic anti-mentally disabled uh, uh we had you know the the, the next thing is sexism and, and you
1: and you've endorsed suicide for trivial reasons trivial <laughs> <laughs> it's not tri- call me maybe <laughs> this is, there's nothing trivial about what I'm going to. <laughs> okay, so you know what I want to talk about next is uh, is how how this twisted philosophy of moral dilemmas made its way into psychology.
0: Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll discuss trolleyology. <laughs>
1: So why yeah, that's the, from Super Eight? <laughs> so why why the Super Eight clip, Tamler? But by the way, a great movie. You haven't seen it? Right? I haven't. I think that I'm going to uh, after we're done recording. I'm just gonna you know go get a drink and watch Super Eight on my own. It's ten in the morning, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Asshole.
0: Uh, I to, uh, not that I'm against that. I think that's Not in great. Canada. I in in Canada, could. it's ten at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. That's right. Forgot you guys were on the other side of the world. So mm-hmm. L. Fanning in that movie. Yes. Koto's fanning sister. Don't, I guess. just just let me stop you there.
1: <laughs> just let me stop you.
0: <laughs> you don't know what I'm going to say. Man. I was going to say that. Okay. The fact that you thought that that's what I was going to
1: say. I, you've just said so much crazy shit fun. already, man. I'm <laughs> just trying uh, to save you.
0: <laughs> yeah, at least I didn't say donkey punch. <laughs> uh, Please see episode five. <laughs> <laughs> or don't uh the the the, the l fanning is tremendous young actress in that movie i mean she her acting in that movie is it's almost mind-blowing she's so good she should have won best supporting actress i mean she gives this it's just a flawless performance it's a flawless performance and um, hmm. high that's praise all i want to say about l fanning good for the, <laughs> for the next at least couple of years.
1: Okay, so train crash, there was no there was no fat guy on the, on the
0: tracks though. There's no there's no fat guy, right? Trolleyology. So, Judith Jarvis Thompson uh, and Philippa Foot, it's attributed to both of them. Those are two philosophers.
1: Is it because uh, one of them put together the two juxtaposed the the trolley and the footbridge and called it this sort of the trolley problem. Who? I, I, I.
0: This is one of those things where the fact that I don't, you know, I wasn't a philosophy major yeah, and yeah. have very little knowledge about uh, <laughs> the actual philosophy. <laughs> actual philosophy done by real philosophers. Yeah. No, I mean, I have I have some, but I have blind, you just wear, I have gaping <laughs> blind spots.
1: You just wear and, a black turtleneck and smoke a cigarette and say, "What is the meaning of life?" <laughs>
0: I have never read either of those original pieces all i know is that it's attributed to them and it's referred to them and uh the basic setup in a in a trolley problem is uh, a trolley is out of control trolley is coming down a track and it can uh either one person's gonna die or five people are gonna die um and you are in a position to make it so that Uh, One person dies. So it's 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 aiming towards the five. And you can do something to make it hit the one person. If you don't do it, then the five people will die. If you do do it, then the one person who would otherwise have lived will be run over by this train. Now, what you have to do is different. Uh, In one variation, all you have to do is put your by the switch and you can shift the tracks. And if you pull the switch, the train will go onto the track with one person if you don't it will kill the five people uh the other variation and this is the variation um that that you use a lot right when you use this problem uh there is a person on a footbridge sometimes often it's a fat person
1: right or uh, some uh, or some guy wearing a really large backpack or something
0: or a guy wearing a little, really large backpack. I saw one that it was a, <laughs> this is worse. It was a pregnant woman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't be my natural response, I suppose.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, it should, because they she come was up with <laughs> the most grisly, like, worst. Right, 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 you know, right. The, the point is to make the consequentialist choice uh, more distasteful. Uh, which certainly, you know, if you ask students and you, add, and, and you run the experiments with the switch, everyone says it's okay and, and often obligatory to pull the switch. But when you put the fat guy on the bridge uh, yeah. or the fat guy or the pregnant woman, right. <laughs> I, I want to do it with my class, the pregnant woman. <laughs> You're right. Uh, cause, see, even if the, there's always a few stragglers that want to just <laughs> still say you should put, push the person off. I right. wonder if they would do that if it was uh, a pregnant woman. But anyway, Josh Green, uh, the psychologist at Harvard, both of us know, he really built his career on this case by showing that it's right. our emotional response in the footbridge case that leads us to make the deontological choice, whereas in the uh, in the case with the switch, our Emotion, the areas in the brain associated with emotion, social cognition uh, are not activated, and that makes us e- it makes it easier to, to, to make the consequentialist choice.
1: Right. So the power the power of juxtaposing those two uh, wasn't it wasn't so much that it was it was about utilitarianism versus the ontology when you when you put those two together, it's that it, there is something funny going on in that people are willing to, and it's not just that you're letting someone die in order to save five people, it's that you're actively acting uh, in order to make the five, uh, make the one die in order to save the five in both cases. And so for philosophers, they pull these intuitions. And so they say, well, what is it that makes it so obvious, right? I think this, this is the way that they would have talked about it. Uh, what makes it so obvious that it's okay to do in the trolley case but wrong to do in the footbridge case? And Josh Green turned it into a psychological question, which essentially assuming that it, it was wrong I, – I think this is fair to Josh Green actually because he is a consequentialist. Assume that it's irrational to make a distinction between these two. Why is it that human beings do it anyway? It must be because we're we're driven by these stupid Kantian intuitions, right? These emotions. These well, emotions.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't think it's fair to, to, that he just assumes from the outset that the consequentialist choice is the right choice. Right. Because he uses his experiment to, to make the case for to make that, the case, right? Right. He, he thinks that because the uh, areas in the brain that are associated with emotion are activated in the footbridge case, that that's what's driving – I think the argument is supposed to work like this, that it's our emotions that are driving the deontological uh, decision-making. Right. And, and and it's an emotion that is based off something that you might think should just be irrelevant, whether, you, whether there's actual physio- f- uh, physical contact with somebody. Right. And and certainly if you're a kind of deontologist that thinks you've reasoned your way to this uh to this position, then I think he can make the case that it's that it's not like that, that it's it's emotions that are driving this rather than uh rather
1: than reason, at least for 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 many people. Right. Um Although this is it's tricky to build this case and I I think Jesse Prince oh, yeah, uh, no. yeah, in a talk Uh, highlights the problem here um, with, for instance, the imaging studies um, or anything that involves mere measurement of emotion is that you can't tell whether emotion is the causal force here or whether it's simply the result of finding it uh, absolutely wrong, right? It could be that you're just so opposed to it out of pure principle that you're angered at the thought of pushing someone.
0: You know, also there was the Leanne Young study, right? The Leanne Young study that launched her, she did it with the Damasio patients. She gave trolley problems to the Damasio patients who have emotional deficits, free have prefrontal lobe right. lesions, right. And, um, and they were more willing to push the fat man off the bridge. They were more willing to make the consequentialist choice. So that's more evidence for the Josh Green view, right? that uh
1: that it's emotions that are driving that yeah I, it it depends it turns on what you think that that deficit in the brain is right um and and that's where the debate is like what exactly is wrong with these people with frontal lobe damage um and it's not obvious that you know the brain just isn't it, it's just a little more complicated than finding the emotion center and that this is damaged because in fact those patients don't seem to have uh, a, uh, like a it's it's not that they can 't feel emotions the way we do it's sort of like they have um this general deficit in in planning for the future for instance right they still get angry and they still get so it's, it's not clear what exactly is going on um see now if you're going to introduce you know
0: sophistication into this debate <laughs> complexity into this debate and that's not fun, so that's not, it's know. not
1: fun at all right right one
0: I of the great I... things about trolleyology and all these trolley cases is not at the end of the day that it's really telling us anything <laughs> it's just so fun to teach and to talk yeah.
1: about and i think that in in so moral psychology experienced this huge resurgence right around 2000 2001 with the publication of of Josh Green and Jonathan Cohen and John Darley's brain paper, and with uh, Jonathan Haidt's paper on, uh, social on social intuitionism, both of which were making in in very different ways the argument that much of our moral decision making is driven by these gut reactions. This was this was sort of the more general uh, zeitgeist. Is that a good word? That's um, great. Yeah, impressive. <laughs> uh, impressive. In, uh, In psychology was – we had completely underestimated how powerful uh, emotions were um, throughout the cognitive revolution. And really, once we started studying uh, emotions, especially by looking at the brain, the 90s became sort of this explosion of research. Really kind of starting in the late 80s, but in the 90s, an explosion of research on on emotions and how they impact judgment and decision-making – and you have, you know, you have this explosion of fields like behavioral economics um, and social psychology, those looking at emotional influences, and in many cases, unconscious influences that are that that are sometimes lumped together as irrational um, influences on decision making. And so it all sort of combines. Moral psychology had been fairly untouched by all of this work until people like Josh Green and Jonathan Haidt. Whose actual birthday it is today, by the way. Um, John Hyde's I, birthday. Yeah, I gotta go. You're gonna send him, him a, a card. I gotta send him a Facebook. I, you know, I have his to. Ass. No, I have to send him a Facebook greeting on the wall because that's what that's what social life has become. We no longer have to send cards or make phone calls. We could just post on the wall. Like mean, it's just little. I actually gonna get, get a little script that automatically posts Happy Birthday on my friends' walls, so, so they think that I'm. Uh, um, <laughs> but it wasn't until until really they those guys put it together. And then I, it was just in the air. It was in the air. Yeah, and right. and it, it just exploded. So I don't even know at last count how many studies have used Trolley examples. probably now in the th- thousands, right? A, maybe. Cl- definitely, definitely in the hundreds. I mean, it's ridiculous. And you've done a couple of
0: great studies. I mean, my favorite study, the study that we bonded over, <laughs> at least I bonded, uh, is your uh, Chip Ellsworth III versus – uh, the Tyrone, Tyrone Jackson Payton, trolley
1: Payton. study, uh, this is awesome. So we, we wanted to know whether so the, the gist of this was actually, uh, an intuition that I always had that people say that they are the ontologists or utilitarians just based on whether or not it agrees with whatever dumb position they have already so this this sneaking suspicion is something that i had early on i remember i used to ask my parents things like wait so in hiroshima and nagasaki we just uh, we just killed a bunch of innocent people and they would say things like well yeah because the war would have been gone on for much longer and many more people would have died so in this case it was justified so but they were using
0: Nagasaki. If you, you know, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you well, know, the, the, the Onion uh, has a great piece on, uh, you know, in our, their history, our dumb century. And the headline uh, they have at that time was Nagasaki bombed, quote, just for the hell of it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's so sad. That's so tragic. And Nagasaki really gets short shrift. I mean the you know, I remember we, we read a book on Hiroshima. Are there any really good books on Nagasaki? You know? It's yeah. Like- yeah. No, no it's, it's just totally forgotten. It's like the Scotty Pippin of you know, of Japan <laughs> of Japan World War Two. Uh um,
0: well, I I'd be willing to bet that's the first time that <laughs> –
1: it's like the James worthy of the um, – Sorry, non sports people. So, so I thought you know, to all Japanese people, and all right <laughs> thinking. I think this is the episode where we offend everyone. So, so we wanted to know whether or not we could just get get people to flip in their endorsement of these principles. All we did was ch- we said, you know. It, if you look at the philosophy literature and the use of these moral dilemmas, and and when it gets poured over psychology, people are always saying things like, "Well, Jones and Smith are stuck, you know, stuck on a track or whatever." Or it's like person A and person B. We're like, let's let's actually get let's get some of these emotional juices going. Let's give these guys names that are going to be associated with something, like something something that you either are okay with or you don't like. So we said, let's call the fat guy that you got to push off the bridge to save. In our case, we made him to save the first study, of hundred people, but then we changed it. Uh, let's give him a name. So we either called him Chip Ellsworth the Third. Which you know, you you think about what images that, that gives you. Or we called him Tyrone Payton. And so essentially we've given a stereotypical African American name or a stereotypical rich white high SES guy name. Uh, like uh, I always think of James
0: Bader and the John Hugh in one of the John Hughes. Oh, yeah, Super yeah. For, yeah. Uh, Super yuppie for, guy. for uh, Chip Ellsworth the <laughs> third, you know, where like you know he's
1: just, like uh, hi, Bobby, you know. let's go play a game of <laughs> Yeah. Um so uh, so we also measured political orientation and we found that – that uh, guess what? The liberals, people who, who self-reported being politically liberal, um, if we told them that you can throw the rich white guy off of the trolley uh, – off of the footbridge in order to save a bunch of black lives, they're like, well, yeah, of course. Um, but if we use the black guy, Tyrone Payton, to save a bunch of white lives, they're like, no, that's wrong. And importantly so you're
0: playing on their sort of politically correct
1: Exactly. Uh, what John I would call the uh uh the oppression foundation. Yes, yeah. That's right. That's right. And and uh in fact like the action was mainly in the liberals um like the, more of the bias was there. So they were like uh, importantly they were like if we ask them why they were like, well, because it's just wrong to kill an innocent person. They didn't say because because a black life is worth more, or or in the case in the other case, like they would say, like, oh no, it's just of course it's the greater good. And we got we got it depending on how you look at the data. We got some of that bias with conservatives. It was really ramped up with conservatives when we switched it to be Iraqi versus American. Um, and so we could show that in both. <clears throat> I like that paper because it shows that in both cases you can you can show that that people on the right and on the left are pretty pretty knee jerky that people don't have a stable set of preferences that we might think so you know a philosopher or a psychologist who's who who's using these philosophical dilemmas to to measure people, you might think that you're getting at stable preferences. Like what are people who are deontologists like? Or what are people who are utilitarians like? Well we we just show that, you know, people aren't utilitarians or deontologists. They are people with a whole bunch of attitudes. And sometimes they have to use uh, utilitarian justifications for those attitudes. Sometimes they have to use it. They'll use whatever they – we call it the moral toolbox. They'll pull out whatever principle they right. can to defend their position. And that's uh, – that fits in with
0: the sort of kind of social intuitionist model, right? The idea that we have, we have our gut reaction and we post hoc rationalize right. the
1: gut reaction afterwards. Exactly. Um, so in, in using those trolley dilemmas like we were trying to say you, you're using it wrong. Like Steve Jobs in the iPhone, you're holding it. <laughs> you're 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 thinking that the trolley dilemmas are getting at some sort of stable preferences. So Josh Green is saying, you know, we can tell that people who use deontological thinking are people who are kind of more knee-jerk, intuitive people. People who use consequentialist thinking are the more well thought out, well reasoned kinds of individuals. Um, yeah. And you're you're fighting against that, showing kind, no, least- uh, you can't well- yeah, it's not that I so much disagree with that. It's just that I'm showing that people are probably less stable than we might think, right? Or or at least in everyday life, when you get their actual emotional juices flowing, they're going to use whatever they want. Or, I mean there's that
0: possibility or there's the possibility that these trolley problems are j- – just don't – adequately get at whether we're consequentialist or utilitarians let's take another quick break but you did another study that got written up in the economist that's right uh, and the basic idea behind it is that utilitarians are sociopaths are psychopaths right, right. or at least that's the that the headline in the economist is utilitarians are not nice people Yes. So you have actually demonstrated that, uh, that all utilitarians like are you. assholes. Yeah. So let's talk about that study and the the press that it got after a quick break. Okay.
1: All right. Welcome back. Uh, I want to start off by by giving a little anecdote. Part of There's this wonderful program at Cornell called the Cornell Prison Education Program. And uh, Cornell professors and graduate students are able to teach courses to uh, prisoners in a maximum security prison in upstate New York. It literally is where it comes – that phrase, we'll ship you upstate, comes from these upstate New York prisons. And it's – I got to say I gave a I gave a I was asked to give a lecture on moral psychology and I went and gave a lecture it was one of the best experiences I've had. The one thing you don't want to know though is what these guys are in there for cuz these are real serious serious offenses. I mean these are murders and and all kinds of stuff. So you try not to to talk to them about why they're there. So so I gi- I'm giving this talk. Uh, I was actually really uncomfortable man because they're in there because of their failures of moral judgment. <laughs> right? And so here I am talking about trolleys and shit and you know these guys are like, well, I I beheaded my girlfriend and hid her, you know, head in the refrigerator for a few weeks before. I-. But um uh <laughs> but okay, but nonetheless I go in and I'm talking uh you know, I present the the trolley problem, right? So I give them the trolley dilemma. Right, uh, and then I give them the footbridge dilemma, and I so I ask people first trolley dilemma, which is consistent with the general population. Most people think that it is, as you said, not only okay to flip the switch to save the greater number of lives, but in many cases obligatory that you you ought to do that. And then right. and then I said, okay, now what about this? And so I present the the footbridge dilemma and the fat man, and I say, now how many of you think it's right? I got exactly the kinds of results that you would want, like you would get in a classroom. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, first one, yeah, second one, oh, no, that's horrible, except for this guy in the very front. Kind of a menacing-looking guy, but he he was animated, and he had been talking already, and he goes – he's looking, and he goes, it's the fucking same thing. And uh, so I you know, I, I put on my nervous smile, and I'm like, yeah, no, but and, – and everybody else, like all the other prisoners are like – yeah, no, but, you know, in the first one, you're pulling a switch. and the second one, you got to, like, actually push the guy. And he's, like, not smiling at all. He's, like, it's the fucking same thing.
0: He's like, you guys, don't you get the math? You don't understand the math. <laughs> yeah, it's he's, one like, one person what? to save five. Uh.
1: <laughs> so, so I'm just, like, oh, man. I was, like, yeah, but you're trying to pull the intuition. And he's, and all the other guys are kind of nervous, too, about it. Like, and they're, like, but, dude, you right. you have to, like, shove someone. and he, And he's, like. You what are you guys talking about? It's the fucking same thing. And uh, and that you I think, couldn't even see that there was an issue. Here. Yeah, I think for him it was just like it, it was just like why are you know, when when philosophers talk about these sort of non moral, like or arbitrary characteristics, he that was a perfect I, the way that I saw him acting, it would be like if you said, imagine that you can kill um, a guy in a red shirt to save like 100 people versus a guy in a blue shirt. And now imagine that everybody else around you was like, no, 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 but you don't get it. In the second one, it's a blue shirt. And I would just be like, but it's the same thing, guys. Right. Right. That's how he sounded. <laughs> right. and so uh, there was
0: something in him that and, and, and what you're suggesting i take it is emotionally yeah. that whatever trigger it is that makes us r- uh be repelled from pushing somebody off a bridge just didn't exist just for didn't him, exist. For him you, it was still the mass so this, this was is was kind of in line with the leanne young exact, uh,
1: exactly yeah, exactly yeah. so so <laughs> so now now what do you do do you uh do you use this as a pedagogical moment to to promote the idea that people with mildly psychopathic personality traits <laughs> might actually be more uh, – be more sympathetic to the utilitarian framework, which is exactly what I did um, and then secretly just hoped that he wouldn't um, later on after he was released, if he is ever released, come to my house and uh, and murder me slowly thinking that it's the moral thing to do. Um but it was really interesting, and it gets at the point that that uh, well, <laughs> one possible point that might have come from this paper that I did with Dan Bartel. So let me just quickly say uh, what we did and and I think you know we 've talked about this before the the story of how it was reported versus what we actually meant by it because
0: um, how it's reported is utilitarians are not nice people. Anybody who has a utilitarian judgment, as demonstrated by the Trolley case, also tends to have these other traits, right, that are psychopathic or just antisocial and mean. Right,
1: right. And and so so to set the stage, let me just say that the title of the paper is The Mismeasure of Morals, colon, Antisocial Personality Traits Predict Utilitarian Moral Judgments. Now – Dan Bartels, who's a, a wonderful researcher, uh, cognitive science, uh, cognitive psychology guy, who is now working at uh, the Business School at Columbia. Um, we wanted to. The be in our bonnet was that these moral dilemmas have been used quite a bit um, as a way to understand human moral judgment, and in particular, the quality of human moral judgment. So. So people like Jonathan Baron and Josh Green have used these to show or to argue that sort of there are cases in which we are rational individuals like uh, and and we make the the right moral judgment the utilitarian moral judgment um, and when but when we're driven by by our gut stupid emotional systems we make the deontological moral judgment and we were concerned that that these measures aren't really tr- you know they're not tracking what Many people think they're tracking. It might be that what utilitarian moral dilemmas are are tracking is whether or not you're just not bothered by the thought of shoving someone to their death. So what we right. did was we gave a, a whole set of trolley-like moral dilemmas, sacrificial moral dilemmas that pit these two things together, consequentialism versus deontology. And… Uh, We gave those to people and we also gave a set of questionnaires that have been developed by other psychologists that measure kind of these darker personality traits. So uh, Machiavellianism uh, is one scale that measures the degree to which people are manipulative socially, Uh, a a psychopathy scale that's intended to measure uh, in in a subclinical population – the presence of personality traits that would be associated with psychopathy. Um, so in particular, we were really interested in this uh, uh, callous traits. So, so traits that that make people sort of unemotional or not sensitive to the, to the suffering of others, that kind of thing. And then there was a third scale called the uh, – life meaning scale. So it basically measures whether or not you think life is meaningless by just straightforwardly asking you things like, do you think life has meaning? <laughs> uh, yeah. and what we found was a correlation, a fairly strong correlation that to the, the extent to which you were willing to take, to endorse the utilitarian solution to these moral dilemmas, you were also more likely to be higher in psychopathic personality traits and Machiavellianism and to find that there is really no, no meaning to life. Um, and so, so – it's OK. So you take that – Which
0: <laughs> – I think you're at least two of those, right? <laughs> Even though you're not – you don't make utilitarian judgments.
1: Uh, I'm actually – I'm so high in empathy that I can barely handle to walk outside and see the suffering of others. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, now you can, right? Because it's the suffering of
1: Canadians. All right. Well <laughs> – when I say others, I mean normal human beings, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, draw, I draw my moral circle very narrowly <laughs> to exclude Canadians. Um, <laughs> no, no. Some of my best friends are Canadian. Um, some of my favorite ex-wives. That's
0: where you draw the line. Some
1: of my favorite ex-wives are Canadian. <laughs> Oh that's right. I forgot your (laughs) ex-wife was Canadian. No wonder. Yeah. So my daughter's half Canadian, so I have to you know, it's like Wow. So you kind of hate your daughter. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. I just really love half of her. (laughs) (laughs) Um (laughs) so so yeah, so this the point the real point that we were trying to make was that this is a pretty bad way of measuring human morality. If what you're doing,  … is concluding that you have a measure of optimal morality. And you're saying, uh, look, reasonable moral people like uh, people that that Josh Green or John Barron consider to be the, the smarter ones, the system as as psychologists call them, system two thinking, right? The people who actually think deeply about this stuff. Um, they're, are, they're the utilitarians, re- they're the utilitarians and they're and the, this is a good thing. If you're what if you're what you're unwittingly doing is picking up on people who who simply who simply are okay with the thought of killing someone. Right? So I think that this is this is what's what's uh, the at heart the problem with these sacrificial moral dilemmas is that you're by mistake capturing a whole set of people that might just be okay with killing someone. Now the way that so it got this is a
0: You're painting it as, and this is certainly not how it was painted in the popular press, you're painting it as a critique of the methodology that social psychologists are using to place people into the categories of either utilitarians or deontologists. Right.
1: So, so, but now if you don't, if you actually endorse these as good measures of utilitarianism and deontology or whatever, um, then the finding becomes utilitarians are psychopaths, which is right. the finding, I think, that and the way that it was reported in The Economist, um, yeah. which is the article that you're you're alluding to. As, and it was great. It was flattering to be picked up by The Economist, and I'm not complaining. Um, but it, it really did open us up for attack in that – and to be – to be perfectly fair, I think that that Dan more so than me actually doesn't like people who are utilitarian, um, and so he's okay with the, with the jab. And you kind of don't. I mean, that's
0: that's this. That's the irony of the misinterpretation is that you kind of, as a side issue, agree with the misinterpretation.
1: Well, as a side issue, yeah. And I, and I kind of, I, I, yeah. I,
0: I, You know, I, I see a side to that. Right? So yeah. I mean, so
1: there are, there are a few possibilities. So. While we're making a methodological critique, here's here's what might be happening. One might be that there are true utilitarians who out of compassion for humanity want to maximize happiness or well-being or whatever. Another possibility is that there are people who endorse utilitarianism because they're simply less uncomfortable with those solutions. And right. so you might have someone who say, – say someone who has mild Asperger syndrome who – I yeah. think you and I have to say some of our best friends have mild Aspergers. <laughs> yeah. I think if you're an academic, you're just, you just go, an academic. Yeah. That's, that's and an academic. Uh,
0: has someone done a study showing that people with Aspergers have utili- you know make utilitarian judgments?
1: Um, you know, I just recently saw something. I don't think it was Aspergers; it was autism, and yeah. and they yeah. didn't find that. But uh, but that, yeah, but and we can talk about that at some some other time. And I think it's because because <laughs> the autistic kids, I think this was kids, the autistic kids knew the rules, right? And oh, so you, I, it's it's hard to tease those apart. Did you ever read Animal Liberation? The Peter Singer. I read par- uh, I read parts of it. Yeah.
0: The, he he opens the book with a description of visiting a family, um, I think in Britain. And you know it's a nice kind of they they're, they're giving him tea, and they have a couple of dogs, and the dogs come up to him and sort of sniff him and uh and he kind of is uncomfortable is like he kind of wants them to get away from <laughs> him uh, and uh, they said, oh, they're so surprised, I would think that you would love animals and then he says, and this is the big misconception: I actually don't love animals <laughs> uh, right. I, I, you know I, I don't have a pet i don't really like them i've never really found them." You know, cute, uh, but uh, I just want to reduce suffering,
1: right? Uh, and so, it, uh, yeah, okay. So here's the thing. So it may very well be, and I gotta say that when we were when our paper was under review at Cognition, Jonathan Barron, who is a psychologist uh, who who we, whom we actually criticize in this paper for doing this very thing, endorsing uh, consequentialism, and then thinking that it's the normative thing that everybody should endorse, he was very very reasonable, and he said, look. Um I buy that it might be that utilitarians are, are uh, slightly less less emotional. like they have less of these these sort of warm, otherly directed emotions. But uh, you can't just say that because they lack some of these emotions that they're they're psychopaths. Um, it could be that we need people who are slightly less moved by the individual suffering of one innocent person uh to make the kind of tough decisions that are required of modern human beings. Right? So now we have to make things like policy decisions where we're like, okay, do you want a few hundred people to die of this or do you want uh, to you know, or do you are you okay you with that? Want to take a risk of a
0: great right. uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. And if you if you're in that position, and the bat that's where the Batman movie is a good example. Right? So the end of the first uh, Nolan Batman movie, The Dark Knight. Where uh, uh, that 's not the first one the first one 's Batman begins is oh sorry it's the second one yeah it 's the one with the joke. Um, when there's that moral Why is dilemma, a comic
0: book geek like you would make that
1: mistake. <laughs> I know, I know. It's because- hey, you know what, Dave?
0: Yeah, this is ter- I didn't think this was going to be a two-parter, but it's kind of turning into a two-parter. Let's do that. Let's uh, make
1: it a two-parter because how could we possibly, with all of the work done on deontology and utilitarianism, how could we possibly do this in one episode when we spend?
0: And, and I think in part two, we can also broaden a little bit to this question of. The, the, the role of emotion in moral decision-making and the role of reason and which should have precedence. So it's because, again, there's this implicit assumption if it's an emotionally driven judgment, it's bad. Uh, right. Reason-driven judgment, it's good. And that's one that I have – that I used to subscribe to a lot more than I do now, which is practically not at all. Right. I believe so, that
1: now you're yeah. you're just solely driven by your disgust response.
0: <laughs> exactly. As long uh, if, if it's disgusting, then it's morally wrong, and uh, I don't want any part of it, and I think the government should act, take active steps to put <laughs> everybody in jail who
1: does something that I find disgusting. Who, like, picks their nose. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, on that note, uh, we'll we'll wait for part two, where we'll talk more broadly about about emotions
0: and continue this discussion about your paper and uh, utilitarians, and because it's all it's all it's all connected. It's all connected. The
1: has spoken. For more information about this episode, including shoutouts and links. And to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizard. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man.
0: Good, good man. They think big thoughts, and
1: with no more brains than you have. Pay no attention to that man.
0: Anybody can have a brain? Very good man, just a very bad wizard.